Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the names we give people from different places, the difference between the words healthy and healthful, and we'll get to the bottom of the origin of the word we've talked about the last two weeks, sussies. Emily from the greater Pittsburgh area submitted a question about names for people from different places. Specifically, she grew up in East Liverpool, Ohio, and one of her college professors referred to people from her town as East Liverpudlians. Is that correct? Well, yes, actually it is. But let's talk about demonyms in general first, and then we'll get back to Emily's specific example. Even though the spelling of demonym begins with demon, D-E-M-O-N, don't worry, it's not something that'll haunt you in the night. According to Merriam-Webster, it means, quote, a word used to denote a person who inhabits or is native to a particular place, unquote. You may also hear demonyms referred to as denizen names, denizen meaning an inhabitant or resident of a particular place. Keep in mind that, although they sometimes have the same form, demonyms are different from descriptive adjectives, which are used to describe a person or object from a certain place. Demonyms are nouns. So, for example, you'd refer to a person from Spain as a Spaniard, but a bottle of Rioja as a Spanish wine, using Spanish as an adjective. Also, a group of people from a particular location can have multiple demonyms. For example, a person from the UK can be called a Briton, or less formally, a Brit. And a single demonym can have different meanings. For example, a Columbusite could be someone from the Columbus in Georgia, Indiana, or Ohio. Now, let's look at how demonyms are formed in English. Generally, demonyms are formed by adding a suffix or ending to the place name. As you know, English always has deviations from the rules, so stick with me. But according to popular science and Garner's modern English usage, here are a few general guidelines to remember. If a place name ends in A or IA, you typically add an N, as in Atlantan or Californian. Place names ending in E, or an I that sounds like an E, often get an A-N ending, as in Baltimorean, Hawaiian, and Albuquerquean. 
If a place name ends in an O, you replace it with an A-N or an I-A-N, like San Diegan or San Antonian. Chicago is an exception to that rule, where the O is left intact and the A-N is added, giving you Chicagoan. If a place name ends in a D or K, it typically gets an E-R after the name, like New Yorker and Marylander. If the name ends in Y, it changes to I-A-N, as in Albanian for people who live in Albany, New York, or to I-T-E, as in Garyite for people who live in Gary, Indiana. If the name ends in Polis, P-O-L-I-S, such as Annapolis, it changes to Politan, as in Annapolitan. And place names ending in other consonants often get an I-A-N, like Houstonian or Washingtonian. Of course, this is English, so sometimes the rules don't apply. So remember those were guidelines, not hard and fast rules. The tricky part comes when people from a certain group or location prefer to be called something than other what fits the general rules. Either when a group of people use something different from the official name, like Burkinos for Albuquerque residents, or when everyone uses a name you wouldn't expect, like how the people in Phoenix all call themselves Phoenicians instead of Phoenixonians or Phoenixites, as you might expect. Demonyms are derivational, which just means that people often use the word they prefer or are used to, so don't just follow the general rules. Be sure to double-check that you're using the right name if you aren't sure. Places don't just have official demonyms, though. They also often have nicknames, and they can be broken down into some main categories, too. Some nicknames come from an object, animal, or industry common to the area, such as nutmeg and nutmegger for people in Connecticut, blue hen and muskrat for people in Delaware, gator for people in Florida, cornhusker for people in Nebraska, and cheesehead for people in Wisconsin. Some are based on geography, like Downeaster for people in Maine and Bay Stater for people in Massachusetts. Some nicknames come from other languages, like the Spanish Arisonese for people in Arizona and Tejano for people in Texas, and the Hawaiian Kama'aina for a native-born Hawaiian person. Some nicknames come from the local culture or historical events, such as Tar Heels for people from North Carolina. According to the University of North Carolina, NCpedia, and Project Muse, Tar Heel dates back to North Carolina's early history as a leading producer of naval supplies. Workers who poured turpentine, tar, pitch, and other materials from the state's many pine trees often went barefoot during the summer and undoubtedly wound up with tar on their heels. So the term Tar Heel implied that the person worked in a lowly trade. Later, though, during the Civil War, North Carolina soldiers turned Tar Heel into an accolade, an expression of state pride. Then, a couple of decades later, in the 1880s, when UNC teams began competing in intercollegiate sports, they adopted Tar Heels as their nickname. But as people today reflect on those old ties of Tar Heels to the Confederacy, the names become controversial. Another fun example is Hoosiers for people in Indiana. Although its origin has been widely debated, Hoosiers has been in use since the 1830s and was popularized by a poem called The Hoosier's Nest by John Finley. It's probably the most popular state nickname in the U.S., and according to the Washington Post is, quote, what Indiana natives have been proudly calling themselves for nearly two centuries, unquote. 
Hoosier was officially adopted as the state's demonym in 2016, replacing Indianan. Much like state demonyms, city demonyms and nicknames can also come from some common categories. Some come from the place name itself, like Houstonian and San Diegan. Others come from objects, industry, or animals common to the location, like conch for people in Key West. Some are geographical references like Youpers for people from the Upper Peninsula or UP Michigan, UP, Youp. Some come from other languages like the Spanish Angeleno for those from Los Angeles, also referred to as Angeleno and Angelino. Finally, some are just idiosyncratic, meaning they don't follow the general rules. For example, people from Salem, Massachusetts are officially called Salemites, but are also humorously called Salamanders. And before Batman, New Yorkers were called Gothamites because the name was for some reason transferred from the name of people from the village Gotham in Nottinghamshire in the UK. Interestingly, it sometimes had a negative connotation early on, because in the 1200s, the people in Gotham supposedly pretended to be deeply stupid to fend off an unwanted royal visit. Every time the king's messenger would arrive, they'd quickly start engaging in weird antics. For example, a site called Historic UK says that the villagers caught a troublesome eel that was eating all their fish and then, quote, threw it back into the water to drown it, unquote. Apparently, their feigned idiocy worked and the king stayed away, but it also caused the name Gothamite to be used to describe someone who was foolish or a simpleton. But these days, Gothamite has more of a cool factor given its association with the Batman franchise. Of course, we don't want to limit ourselves to just names from the United States, either. Other countries and cities obviously have demonyms in English, too. For example, someone from Afghanistan is an Afghan with no I at the end, contrary to the rule we discussed previously. The Afghani is a form of currency in the country. Our friends from down under are called Australians, of course, but one of the most common nicknames is Aussie or Aussie. A resident of Denmark is called a Dane, and the adjective is Danish. Someone from Equatorial Guinea in Africa is called an Equatorial Guinean or an Equato-Guinean. And a New Zealander can also be referred to colloquially as a Kiwi after the flightless bird that is only found in New Zealand and has become one of their national symbols. And before we go on, a word to the wise. Some demonyms or nicknames can be offensive or insulting. They may be culturally, ethnically, or racially charged terms. Some demonyms have a long history that wasn't always pretty, and some may be used to describe things from a particular country, but are considered offensive when describing people. For example, according to academic dictionaries and encyclopedias, scotch is used primarily for food and drink products of Scotland, but in most other contexts, it's archaic and often considered mildly derogatory. So you may follow a recipe for scotch eggs, but you'd call a person from Scotland a Scot, Scotsman, or Scotswoman. Finally, we'll end this segment where we started with Emily's question. Was her professor correct in calling residents of East Liverpool, Ohio, East Liverpudlians? Well, yeah. People from Liverpool, UK are in fact called Liverpudlians, which is perhaps one of the most amusing demonyms you might encounter. 
According to WordSense, the term is a play on the words Liverpool, the larger pool, and puddle, a small part of the pool. A quick call to the East Liverpool, Ohio mayor's office confirmed that this town has, in fact, adopted the term East Liverpudlian from British English. So yes, Emily, it appears your professor was correct. When in doubt, it's always best to ask what someone prefers to be called. And remember that this could vary from person to person, too. But if you can't ask and find yourself needing to look up the correct demonym for people of a region, the U.S. Government Printing Office Style Manual includes the demonyms for many U.S. cities and for people from some countries outside the U.S. And the CIA World Factbook also lists official country demonyms. And Gardner's Modern English Usage has a list, too. Finally, if you're really stuck, sometimes searching the local newspaper can be helpful if you have a guess to start your search. Or you can even try calling the mayor's office. That segment was written by Susan K. Herman, a former U.S. government editor, language analyst, and language instructor. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules? only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Next, I have a question I answered for the nutrition diva that I thought you'd enjoy. I'm here today with the wonderful Monica Reinigal from the Nutrition Diva podcast, and she had a listener with a question. Yes, Mignon, I knew immediately that you were the person to get me out of this jam. So thank you so much. 
<laughs> for jumping in here. So this was an email I got from a listener named Shell, and he says, I've loved your podcast for at least seven years now, and I always love it when they start by buttering you up, right? Right. Right. It's so much better when they're nice about it. <laughs> of course, he goes on to say, I don't always agree with every word you say, but that's okay with me too. But here's his beef. He says, having been an English major in college, I cringe a bit whenever I hear you say, eat healthy. Eat healthy what? Do you mean eat healthfully or eat healthful foods? And I know what he's talking about, right, Mignon? I'm aware of that difference, um, but I've always found it just so cumbersome to do what seems to be the correct thing, which would always be to say, eat healthfully. And I feel like I've heard you say that it might actually be okay to say eat healthy. So can you back me up here? Yes, I can. And it's so interesting. I actually didn't realize this was a usage question or a usage problem until I became Grammar Girl. And then people wrote into me about it too. So the reason that, um, and a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, what on earth are they talking about? Because this is something that tends to bother older people. So, um, it was, it was, um, a thing that started being brought up in usage guides that came out in the late 1800s. This was the sort of the golden age of usage guides. It was the same time when experts were saying you should call a woman's dress a gown instead. You know, that all sorts of thoughts about language. And, but if you look at the, the history of the word, going back all the way to the 1500s, healthy was being used to mean good for you. But these, um, you know, 1800s, People sort of put a stake in the ground and said, you know, something that is um, in good condition, in feeling well, is healthy, and something that's good for you is healthful. But it is not a something that is stuck. It really hasn't. So if if you look look um, in the 40s, it was back in about the 1940s that healthy started gaining a little bit of ground on healthful. And then by 1975 or 1980, the battle was completely lost. If you look at charts of usage, healthy just becomes asymptotic in those years. It just goes almost, you know, to the moon and, you know, healthful just stays like at a really low level. Well, I, that's fascinating. I thought that healthy had just kind of taken on, had gained legitimacy by common usage, as sometimes happens, that, you know, it's just easier to say, it's less clumsy, and enough people say it that it actually becomes proper usage. What I didn't know is that it actually predated the so the quote-unquote correct form. Right. I didn't realize that it started out being correct and then went out of fashion and is now back in fashion. Are there other words that work that way? Well, it's interesting because there was a third competing word way back in those days, healthsome. So healthsome was another word that, that was competing with healthy and healthful, and it just completely fell out of favor. No one uses that anymore at all. So healthsome is just gone. Healthful is something, you know, maybe older people will use. Or um, if you want to sound old-timey, you know, too, you can, you know, make a joke like, oh, this ale is quite healthsome, or this ale is quite healthful. Um, 
um, you know, it would sound like old timey. And, you know, even back in the late 1800s, when these usage guide experts were making a big deal out of the difference, you can tell from some of the entries that it wasn't really sticking because they had, um, there was a joke from a doctor who said a patient had asked him, you know, in what season were oysters healthy? And he said, well, you know, I've never heard them complain of any ailment. <laughs> so <laughs> even back then, you can tell from jokes like that, people were using healthy to mean good for you. And then the usage experts were sort of saying, no, no, you shouldn't. Wow. I'm so glad we had this conversation because I'm feeling even more validated now than I was before when I thought I was just kind of backed up by common usage. Turns out this is a completely valid alternate word choice. It is. And if you look at the modern usage guides like the AP Stylebook or the Chicago Manual of Style, they'll make a nod to the history of the debate, but they both say that it's completely 100% fine to use healthy to mean good for you today. Great. Now, I don't know whether Shell will be satisfied by that answer, but I certainly am. So thank you very much. You're welcome. I, I hope Shell is satisfied. <laughs> Finally, believe it or not, I have another story about the word sussies, which Amanda, Melissa, and I thought was a family dialect word, but turns out is actually a well-known regional word. And I have to give a huge, huge thank you to a listener named Sandy, who called in with a bunch of detailed information and research. Unfortunately, the audio wasn't good enough to use, but I'll relay it to you. She said that Sessie is an alternate pronunciation of Circe, which is a commonly used word in South Carolina to describe a just-because gift or a thoughtful surprise. It's usually spelled S-U-R-C-I-E, and she even had a friend who named her dog Circe because the dog was a delightful but unexpected gift. She did some research and found that although the etymology is debated, one possible source is the Scottish verb sussy, which means to care or to take trouble. And this may have come to Scottish from the French soci, S-O-U-C-I, meaning to care or trouble. And the word sussy or circe seems to be especially common in the southeastern U.S., which is also an area that had a lot of Scottish settlers. And the Dictionary of American Regional English has anecdotal evidence of the word S-I-R-S-E-E, Circe, in the South Atlantic region of the United States. Another article says the word Circe has a strong association with Columbia College and other women's colleges in the Southeast. Isn't that interesting? And I can't thank Sandy enough for calling in and doing all that research. It was so helpful, and I really appreciate it, and I'm sure all of you do too. And then I also have to thank another longtime listener named Daphne, who also told me that just today she read an obituary of a Texas woman that stated she would bring back gifts, sussies, from her adventures. So it seems as if the word might reach as far west as Texas, or the woman could have originally been from farther southeast. But either way, thank you, Daphne. If you want to call with a story of your family act, a word that your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 83-321-4-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. Maybe you'll find an interesting story you never knew behind your family's funny word. Or maybe it's so unusual because you have an interesting story about the origin of the word yourself. Either way, we love stories about words. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil. 
Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our new digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings, whose dream is to have a cabin in the mountains where she can work and have families spend holidays together. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, and our intern is Brendan Pika. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.